as I mentioned, between now and Thanksgiving, we've got two Sundays, and these two Sundays we are going to to focus on how we can develop a heart of gratitude to God. You know, thankfulness is not an occasional act. Uh, I want to go out and I want to say how important it is to do things like writing thank you notes. Mainly because if I didn't tell you how important it is, my mother would find out and she would have something to say to me about it when she got here at Thanksgiving. Some students are moved into college and their parents get them a mini fridge and other things. I moved in to a college dorm room and my mother handed me a pack of thank you notes. But thankfulness is not an occasional act. It's, it's not something maybe that, that, that always needs to, to sit down on occasion and write it out and put a stamp on it. But it is a lifestyle of intentional and spontaneous appreciation that leads us into the presence of God, that empowers us to be grateful in all circumstances, and that also generates an overflow of generosity. And so today we are looking at this story of these men. The story of these ten men that Jesus comes across on his way to Jerusalem and what happens there. We are in the Gospel of Luke. We are in the 17th chapter. We're going to be starting with the 11th verse. Turn with me if you have your Bibles. If you don't, I'd encourage you to to open up those black, hard, pewback Bibles in front of you. And let me say this to you. If you are with us this morning and you don't have a Bible to call your very own, take one of those black, few Bibles with you. If you know someone, if you have a Bible of your own, but you know someone who needs a Bible, take one of those with us. There is nothing that this congregation will not do to put the Word of God in people's hands. We're in Luke chapter 17, starting with verse 11. Will you stand with me as we read God's Word together? While traveling to Jerusalem, he, Jesus, passed between Samaria and Galilee. As he entered a village, ten men with leprosy met him. They stood at a distance, raised their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he told them, Go and show yourselves to the priest. And while they were going, they were cleansed. But one of them, seeing that he was healed, returned, and with a loud voice gave glory to God. He fell face down at his feet, thanking him. And he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus said, were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Didn't any return to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he told him, get up, go on your way. Your faith has saved you. This is the word of God. Read it, believe it, and live it. Let's pray. Dear God, our prayer this morning is is that as we open your word, that we would fall face down in gratitude before you. That we would humble ourselves before you in thanksgiving for the, the cleansing, healing work that you have done in our lives. And so God, as we open your word and as we study it this morning, my prayer is that the words of our, my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing to you, our God and our King. Amen. Maybe seated. So last week, we were a little someplace else in Luke, if you remember. We were in Luke 19, looking at the story of Zacchaeus. 
And, and we talked there last week, we talked about this, this thing that Luke does where, where he sort of frames telling the story of Jesus as this journey to Jerusalem. And it's important that Luke tells the story that way, right? Because what he's making, the centerpiece of the story, is what happens in Jerusalem. The centerpiece of Luke's story of Jesus is the cross and the empty tomb. And so, and so as Luke tells his story, first in the gospel on the way to Jerusalem, and then in the book of Acts, the church going out from Jerusalem unto the very ends of the earth, He has made Jerusalem and what happens in Jerusalem the center of the story. Why is that? Well, it is the center of God's story. The cross is the hinge of history. And so what we see here, right, is we see Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He's on his way into Jerusalem. And that means a couple of things. It means, one that what he does in this story is not the point, right? It's, it's, it's a thing that happens on the way to the point. But what it also means is, is that Jesus is teaching, he's teaching on his way to Jerusalem so that when we get to Jerusalem, we understand what's happening. And so this story of these lepers is, is from Jesus to help us understand what's going to be happening when we get to Jerusalem. So he's traveling between Samaria and Galilee. I, I think, can you, pull the, can you pull the map up? I don't know how well you can see that. I tried to pick one in color, so it's, it's a little small. But, but the red, you see the red up there? That's Galilee. And the, the teal down at the bottom is Judea. And that's where Jerusalem is. And so normally what they would do is they would cross over the Jordan, right? And they'd go through the Decapolis, because they don't want to go through that purple area, which is Samaria. They don't want to go through that area. They're trying to avoid that area. Good, clean, temple-ready Jews don't want to go through Samaria because the very act of traveling through Samaria will make you unclean so that when you get to Jerusalem, you can't go to the temple. There are all sorts of reasons for that. And for the, for the first century Jewish Thoughts about the Samaritans. We've talked about those things before. But the important thing here in this story is that Jesus is not where a good Jew is expected to be. In fact, he's kind of in between where he's supposed to be. He says that we're, he's between Galilee and Samaria. If you look, there's no between Galilee and Samaria. But Luke's saying he's kind of in between where he's supposed to be, he's out of place. He's with people that he shouldn't be with. Because after all, these Samaritans, right? Well, let's remember the story of the good Samaritan, right? They're the, they're the bad guys. They're the other. They're the, they're the people that are unclean. They're the dirty folks. They're the, the folks that good, respectable, church-going people like us don't interact with. And that's where Jesus is. He's with them. He's, he's on his way to Jerusalem in a place that he's not supposed to be. Thank you. You can take the map down. And so he enters this village. Very interestingly, we're not told what the village is. Oftentimes, the authors of the Gospels will tell us what village it is. It doesn't tell us what village it is, perhaps because it's a Samaritan village and it doesn't matter. 
And as he's going into this village, he encounters ten men. Now, the nerd in me wants to go, aha, so he has avoided the Decapolis going around the outside. That's the ten cities. He's avoided the ten cities so that he can see and find the ten men. Now, that's how my brain works. That's not Scripture, but it's how my brain works. And so he encounters these ten men on the outskirts of this village with leprosy. Now, we know leprosy as a particular disease. In the first century, leprosy is that disease, but it's also all kinds of skin ailments. Everything from eczema and psoriasis all the way up to what we know of as leprosy. But the important thing that what happens with leprosy, and Ms. Sharon talked about it this morning, right? It, it makes the individual unclean. It, it makes them so that they are outcast. They're thrown out of the community. You know, and even in, the, even in the 18th and 19th century, there are still leper colonies in places. And so Jesus meets these lepers. So he, he meets men who are unclean because of their skin condition in a place that simply by being there, they are unclean. So these are doubly unclean individuals. But when they see Jesus, Jesus, we see in verse 12, when they see him, they stand off from him, right? Because they can't get close to him. They can't get close to anybody. They don't want to be that guy who gets up in their space when they're sick. We've all learned a little bit about standing off away from people, right, over the last couple of years. These guys are practicing good social distancing. They're the ones who are observing the little dots in the grocery store. So they stand off at a distance, and they cry out. They cry out to Jesus, asking for mercy. You know, it's important, again, and I think it's hard for us to understand how outside of the community these ten men are. They are not allowed to interact with their friends, with their family members, with society at all. They must live outside. They must, they must yell as they walk down the road, unclean, unclean, unclean. Think about how that would make them feel. Not only do they have this disease that potentially is, is painful and destroying their bodies, Yet the separation from the community destroying their spirits and their souls as well. And so we have Jesus traveling an area that's already made up of outcasts, already an unclean area, coming, filled of people who are deemed not good enough, not pure enough, not clean enough. And then he comes across ten more who are even so outcast, so unclean, that they're outside of that society. Cry out, Master, have mercy on us. Have mercy on us. Know what the cry? The cry isn't, Master, heal us. Master, touch us. Master, speak to us. Master, have mercy on us. You live apart 
from others, unable to participate in communal life. And their condition was incurable from an earthly perspective. There was no cure for leprosy. Once a leper, always a leper. There was no coming back from leprosy. And they know something. They know that they need heavenly intervention. That the condition that they find themselves in is one that their own merit, their own work, or even the work of others cannot heal. Only divine, heavenly intervention. And so they ask for mercy, and Jesus demonstrates it. And it's this kind of weird thing, right? Where Jesus doesn't say, okay, you're healed. They cry out to him, hey, Master, have mercy on us. He says, okay, go see the priest. It's kind of a weird thing to do, right? Weird way to do it. But they go, and as they are going, they are cleansed. We don't know how far they had gotten before they are cleansed, but we know that it happens. This is, this is sort of weird, right? Present yourself to the priest. Why? Well, because in Leviticus, we find that it's, it's the, only the priests who are, can examine those with skin diseases and determine that they are clean and can re-enter the society. The priests are the ones who determine who's in and who's out. Let me tell you, not a job I want. And so once they're declared clean, they could return to full participation into the covenant community under the blessing of God. They could, they could return once they were cured of their skin disease. Once they were cured, they could be healed. Now, I don't want to make too big a, a point here, but there are two words. There's healing and there's curing. Curing is fixing the physical thing. Healing is restoration. And if you notice in the New Testament, what Jesus does, Jesus doesn't cure. Jesus heals. He doesn't get rid of the skin disease. He restores these men to community, to relationship with the people around them. And so Jesus instructs them, go show yourselves to the priest, because he knows that they will be cured on their way and in the process will be healed and returned to the covenant community. And then there's, there's one. There's this one who he's going. And as he's going, I don't know, did he feel it? Could he feel it in his, in his body? The leprosy leaving him? Was he super itchy and painful and then suddenly wasn't? Was he looking at his hand and saw the sores? How did he know? We don't know. But we know that as he's going on his way to the priest with the nine others, he recognizes that he has been healed. And he, again, we don't know how long it's been. We don't know if if they're a quarter of a mile down the road, two miles down the road, three miles down the road, two feet down the road. But he stops. He stops. He's going to the one group of people who can tell him that he can go back to his family, go back to his friends, go back to his household. He stops, and he turns around, and he comes back to Jesus, and he throws himself on his face in front of Jesus. And with a loud voice, gives glory to God. 
He doesn't care what anybody thinks. He's not ashamed to fall on his hands and knees, on his face, in front of this man from Nazareth. Will anything good come out of Nazareth? From this man of Nazareth, throw himself on the ground in front of him. He doesn't care what people think when he raises a loud voice giving glory to God. Oh, man, are people going to think I'm weird? Are people going to think I'm one of them, like, religious nuts? What will people do when they find out I'm a Jesus freak? What will people do when they find out it's true? Okay, now I'm quoting DC Talk. He doesn't care. But he also, he wants to identify with Jesus. He knows where his blessing has come from. He knows that he's cried out, have mercy on me, and mercy has been shown him, and he wants to identify with that. And so he falls face down at Jesus' feet and thanks him. Because a thankful heart brings us closer to God. Because a thankful heart causes us to fall down at the feet of the Master and sing His praise and His glory. Then there's this, there's this, this bit that Luke adds. I think if I could meet any of the New Testament authors, I mean, I'd love to meet with Paul, right, and his wisdom his understanding of the gospel. I'd love to meet with the author of Hebrews so we could finally finish the controversy on who the author of Hebrews was. But if there was one author of the New Testament that I wanted to hang out with, it would be Luke. Go back and read the way Luke writes his stuff. Luke's got a sense of humor. And the way he adds things in. And he just throws it in here. Oh, oh yeah, this guy, right? This guy that I've been telling you about, this guy that you think is so great because he's turned around and to thank God. Oh yeah, I didn't tell you this part. Samaritan. Jesus looks at him and he sees that this man is the only one who is returned. And Jesus asks, what, what happened to the rest of you? Where are the nine? Nine Jews and one Samaritan were healed and it was only the Samaritan who returns to give glory to God. The Samaritan the one outside the covenant, the one who doesn't have it right, the one who worships weird and in the wrong place, the one who's dirty, the one who's out of place, the one who can't even enter the temple in Jerusalem. That's the one who returns to give glory to God. And so, even though they've been healed, the Samaritan receives something else. The nine experience the external blessing of the the curing of their body and their restoration to the community. But the Samaritan, this one man, he experiences an internal spiritual blessing that is a response to his visible and vocal faith and gratitude to God. Many of us, many of us want the physical blessings from the Lord. Don't we? We ask for it. Heal me, heal her, heal him. Help my business, help my farm. Let the rain grow, let the rain stop. We want the external, physical blessings from the Lord. But too many, even us believers, too many of us lose out on the true spiritual blessings that come through worship and praise and thanksgiving. There's intentional thanksgiving. Psalm 9, 
The first verse of Psalm 9 says, I will thank the Lord with all my heart, and I will declare all your wondrous works. There are ways that we can express gratefulness to God in intentional thanksgiving. We can set aside deliberate times and practices to give thanks to God. We can, we can keep a gratitude journal and write down five things each day that we're thankful for. We can set aside time with God exclusively devoted to thanksgiving and praise. How often is our prayer time dominated by petition? Do this for me, God. Let's take some time and intentionally set some time aside to, to spend time with God in thanksgiving and praise. Many of us, I know, we pray over our meals, but how many of us pray the same rote prayer we learned when we were a child? God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for our food. By his hands we are fed. Give us today our daily bread. We're teaching that to Nikolai. Uh, not Nikolai. That's my godson. James. James. James is my son. I wish I could teach it to Nikolai. He needs some God in his life. At least I didn't use the dog's name. I've done that a couple times recently. Or how about the one that I learned at camp? Rub-a-dub-dub, thanks for the grub, yay God. But how about when we sit down to ask for the blessing on our food, which, by the way, I don't provide the blessing. You don't provide the blessing. God provides the blessing. When we ask God to bless our food, how about we take some time and give thanks in that moment for all of the other things that God has given us? Not just the food in front of us. Not just the hands that have prepared and brought the food to us. But for all of the good things that God has done for us. I saw a suggestion recently, speaking of thank you notes. Sit down. It's related to the gratitude journal, but sit down and write thank you notes to God. Some of us, some of us think a little differently when we have a pen in our hand. But there are also moments of spontaneous thanksgiving. That's another way that we can develop an attitude of gratitude is, is through spontaneous thanksgiving. This is the response that we see of, of the one who returns. It's an act of spontaneous. It's, it's, it's developing an ongoing practice of giving thanks to God as you go throughout your day. Note, note what it says. As they were going, they were healed. And so as he was going, he stopped to give thanks to God. In the course of what he was doing, he, he stopped. Spontaneous thanksgiving is, even when things seem like they're going wrong, falling on your face and giving thanks. You know, we, we don't understand why the nine don't come back. Nothing, nothing tells us. We don't know why. Maybe they're overwhelmed with the joy of knowing that they're healed. Maybe they're so excited to know that they're healed that they're running home to see their wife and their kids or, or running to the priest so they can be declared clean so they can go home. Maybe some of them were upset with God in the first place. You gave this to me. Maybe some are just taking Jesus at his word that, well, Jesus told me to go see the priest. I'm going to see the priest. I'm doing exactly what he tells me to do. We don't know why they don't return. 
but they do demonstrate how easy it is for us to receive the blessing of God without stopping and offering up thanksgiving to Him. It's so easy sometimes to be overwhelmed with the good stuff, to enjoy the good stuff, which that's why God's given it to us, to enjoy it, to enjoy the good stuff, to stop and, and give thanks for it. Ungratefulness always leads us away from God's presence. We see this in, in Paul in Romans 1, chapter, verse 21. For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. But the one, he, he, he glorifies him as God. He shows gratitude. And in the midst of his joy, he comes back and he throws himself face first at the feet of the master. One of my best friends in high school was a guy named Toby Sturgill. Toby's dad, as I mentioned earlier, Toby's dad was an Air Force chaplain, but Toby was in the youth group with us. His mom, Rhonda, was in a wheelchair, is in a wheelchair. When she was 18 years old, she was, had, as she likes to phrase it, an unintentional dismount from her horse. She was thrown from her horse, and it broke her back, and it left her paralyzed. And I shared her story a, a couple of weeks ago. It was the 50th anniversary of her accident. And I shared that, um, and go back on my Facebook page and, and look for it. It's just a couple of posts down, the middle of October. But she talks about how she woke up in the hospital, and And she prayed to die. She was a young, active, 18-year-old, loved riding horses, loved being active in the mountains of Pennsylvania, and could not imagine life that was in front of her. And she had a nurse who came in, saw what was going on, basically slapped her upside the head and said, stop it. You have so much to be thankful for. And so Rhonda talks about throwing herself into her rehab, learning how to to use a wheelchair, learning how to get herself in and out of the car. Her dad got her a car with hand controls because he was not going to cart her all over the place. She was going to have to cart herself. So she tells the story that one day she was driving through the Brandywine Valley in Pennsylvania and stopped at a state park and went out to, to, to sit in the grass overlooking the Brandywine Valley. This is, these are her words now. As I transferred myself out of my car, pushed through the opening of the wall, lifted myself out of my wheelchair, and sat on the ground, taking in all of the beauty which surrounded me. One deep breath after another, I contemplated my life as a person with a disability. What did the future hold for me? How was I going to do this? I was scared. Uncertainty began to overtake me, and yet something inside me told me I was going to be okay. Ms. Sturgill went on to not only be an Air Force wife and a mom and an awesome place to go and hang out as a teenager, she also ended up being a Paralympian, a gold medal Paralympian in archery. She says, the list of things I cannot do and cannot have is long. For the past 50 years, my physical world has been limited to level concrete surfaces ramps, and electrical lifts. But the list of things I have held out my right hand in moments, but the list of times I have held out my right hand in moments of weakness and despair 
only to be held and helped by God is far longer. He has been a constant presence in my life, assuring me in great and holy mysteries, I am his beloved. He watches over my comings and goings. He directs my path. He brightens up my world with good things and always walks with me through the bad. He's given me so much more than I ever deserved or expected. These are her words still. Life is hard, but God is good. His hand is always reaching out, ready to grab mine. As I enter each new day, I pray I would continue to be aware of my need and awake to his grace. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for the past 50 years. That is a heart of gratitude. That is a heart of a woman who, who, who has taken to heart the words of Isaiah 41, 13, For I am the Lord your God, who holds your right hand, who says to you, Do not fear, I will help you, and who is grateful for that. And so, brothers and sisters, we can develop a lifestyle of thankfulness by intentionally expressing our gratitude and practicing spontaneous acts of appreciation throughout the day. We can, we can give thanks unto God, thankful for what He has done for us. We can reach out our right hand. But let us not forget this story happens on the way to Jerusalem. It happens because all of us have a need that is more than skin deep. A need to be healed. A need to cry out, have mercy on me, a sinner. We all are in need of a healing that can come not through medicine or modern, the marvels of modern science, but a healing and a restoration in our relationship with God that can only come through Christ and his work on the cross. Some of you probably are familiar with the old play, A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum. Let me say this about today. An amazing, grace-filled thing happened on the way to the cross. Extend your right hand and God will take it up. And you may receive not the cure, but the healing that only comes from the blood of the Lamb. Our hymn of invitation this morning is going to be hymn number 27. 